If you're on the internet, it seems like artificial intelligence is everywhere these days. And by now, most people have tried out, or at least heard of, like me, language-based AI systems like ChatGPT. With AI, it's easier than ever to learn about any topic you can think of. Organize your thoughts, write the first draft of a manuscript, and even create a vacation travel plan. Now, these are all fun applications that might help with productivity, but today we're actually going to be hearing about an AI model that uses language-based approaches to actually generate not sentences, but functional protein sequences. Generating proteins in this way holds huge potential to help us solve problems relating to healthcare, sustainable technologies, and more. That's absolutely right. Today's interview is with Dr. Nikhil Neck, a scientist at Salesforce Research who told us about the groundbreaking model, Progen, his team created that will change traditional methods of protein engineering. Discovery. Rehashing Science. We'd like to thank Untapped Resources for sponsoring Science Rehashed. Untapped Resources is a Boston-based foundation that funds the arts, sciences, education, and creative initiatives of people working to improve lives, celebrate community, and solve local problems. With support from the Untapped Resources grant program, we are committed to making science more inclusive and accessible for scientists and the science curious worldwide. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Nike. And as I mentioned, we like to kick off all of our interviews with our guests, introducing themselves in their own words. So could you give us a brief introduction to your background and your path uh, to your current position at Salesforce? Thanks for having me, Laila. Uh, my name is uh, Nikhil Nike. I'm a, a director of AI research at Salesforce, where I lead a team of research engineers uh, at Salesforce AI Research, which is our in-house uh, AI research lab. Uh, my uh, research background, educational background, is primarily in artificial intelligence. I did my PhD at MIT in 2016, focusing on computer vision. Broadly speaking, how do you use uh, computers and AI to understand visual data? Uh, and uh, since then, uh, for the past few years, I've been at Salesforce, where my research has focused on both fundamental AI research, but also applications of AI to problems that are of interest to Salesforce, but also uh, scientific problems that can have impact on the broader society. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that's my uh, very um, uh, short background. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Can you tell us more about how your background in AI modeling came to be useful for protein engineering at Salesforce? At Salesforce Research, we have been working on uh, language models for several years now. Uh, and language models are these AI algorithms uh, that can learn from really large amounts of language data, uh, typically obtained from the internet, to be able to generate uh, novel uh, natural language. I'm sure uh, most of your listeners have uh, played with things like ChatGPT recently. Mm -hmm. And uh, our research, uh, which was kind of parallel to um, uh, those kinds of methods, uh, was then converted into the research we're working on in on proteins. And the way it kind of happened is that we had this insight that in the same way that natural language, the sentences of, are made up of words uh, in proteins, uh, every protein sequence is made up out of amino acid uh, as an amino acid sequence. So every protein is made out of 20 fundamental amino acids. 
so uh, the same technology we're using to train uh, large language models to generate natural language could be applied to generating proteins uh, as amino acid sequences. And that's how our research on proteins started. That is so fascinating. I want to break it down from the beginning, starting with the language and then moving on to the proteins. So from what I understand, right, these generative AI models that are based on natural language models learn from these huge collections of written data, like you were saying, right, from the internet, like chat GPT or things like that. And they're really powerful, right? They can do things like write sentences, they can follow grammatical rules, they can write complex summaries, they can answer questions, they can interact with the user. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about how these models gather enough data to perform so flexibly and accurately, right? Like language, like English is so complex and, and nuanced. Yeah. So h- how can they do that? Um, so in the case of natural language, uh, these models really are learning from a really large amount of data and the models are really large themselves, meaning that they have hundreds of millions of parameters, which mm-hmm. get adjusted uh, to be able to learn the patterns and the structures of natural language. So by uh, doing really kind of really simple exercises of say next word prediction or uh, predicting a word that comes in between a sentence, uh, these models can learn all these complex rules and uh, complex structures that natural language has. And it's somewhat magical to us researchers too that just by kind of training the models on simple objectives, uh, we can have them generate very powerful, very powerfully. A highly realistic and uh, stylistically complex language. Uh, so yeah, I think I would say the, the, the key ingredients here are uh, really large uh, models, which have lots and lots of parameters uh-huh. and being able to acquire lots and lots of data from the internet, uh, which has, which represents a variety of topics and styles and kind of, you know, different representations of language. And how accurate would you say these models are? So in natural language, they are highly accurate uh, for a variety of tasks. So in natural language processing, we define these uh, toy tasks, right? So things like, uh, can these models do well at question answering? Or can they do well at summarizing text? Can they do well at uh, correcting grammatically incorrect sentences? Mm -hmm. Uh, So in AI research, we have defined all of these different tasks and we have standard benchmark data sets on which we can uh, measure algorithm progress. And uh, from the evidence from these large models recently, on many of these tasks, the large language models have equaled or surpassed human performance already. And there are some tasks that they still struggle in, but on average, the models are highly accurate in being able to do different kinds of natural language processing and understanding tasks. I see. I see. And so you mentioned the size of the data sets before, right? Um, Do they always need to be this big, millions of parameters? What's the size of the input data sets? Yes. Um, The two key insights have been that uh, having uh, lots and lots of data helps. And typically, uh, you see a linear or log line improvement in performance as you see more and more data. Uh, And also having large models sizes help. So as you make the models bigger and bigger, they improve in performance. And sometimes they also have what's called emergent kind of behavior, meaning that uh, a smaller model might be very poor at certain tasks, but as you make the model larger, it can suddenly start performing very well. Uh, so both the data set size and the model size uh, matters a lot. Uh, and there is a research area called so studying scaling laws of uh, language models that tries to understand this better. 
We want to try to draw a parallel between proteins and language structures. So for our listeners, can you tell us more about the grammatical rules of amino acid sequences? Um, sure. So I think uh, the rules in proteins are perhaps more complex and uh, less interpretable uh, than what we see in natural language. Uh, and that's probably understandable, right? Because biology is much more complex, perhaps, than natural language. But what we do uh, see evidence for is that similar to uh, statistical methods that try to you know, model co-occurrence of amino acids for generating proteins, meaning that if in a particular type of protein sequence, uh, a couple of amino acids or three amino acids or more than those amino acids appear together frequently, it's fair to say that those are important building blocks uh, for proteins of that type and uh, methods that exploit this, these properties. In the same way, uh, large language models seem to be uh, exploiting these properties of co-occurrence, but perhaps even more complex patterns of co-occurrence and uh, substitution of similar amino acids to be able to generate new sequences. So to summarize, they, uh, they take advantage of co-occurrence of amino acids, but perhaps also learn more complex interactions between amino acids uh, from data. And I saw in your paper that you annotate the, annotated these with like protein function or protein hags. How do you standardize that, right? Because when researchers study proteins, you know, it's in a specific cellular context and it's a specific way. And so how did you standardize all of this kind of information? Right. Uh, so we obtained the data set used to train Progen from a variety of online protein databases like Uniprot and so on. Uh, and of course, uh, the annotations uh, like protein family and function uh, available are not standardized across data sets or even within data set. For some sequences, you might have a lot more information and for some others, you may not have all the information. But these models are highly robust to these kinds of inconsistencies, meaning that it can exploit the information from these uh, annotations or what we call tags in the paper where they are present, but in cases where they are not present, it can they can just ignore it. So uh, we did not really standardize them across protein sequences in a, in a, in a systematic way, but the models are robust to uh, not having information available all the time. So these tags typically come from, uh, they have you know, a protein family annotation, so you get a, a code corresponding to the family. Uh, we also have uh, some tags that correspond to things like, uh, you know, function. Uh, but I would say the majority of the tags represented protein family. And finally, before we get into kind of the validation of the model itself, you talk about conditional generation. Can you explain for our listeners what that means and why it was implemented in the Pergen model? By conditional generation, what we mean is that every sequence that's fed to the, uh, the protein generation model during the training process contains one or more of control tags as input as the first character in the sequence. So uh, that could be uh, corresponding to the, the protein family, you know, as obtained by from their uh, PFAM ID, for example. And then that's followed by the actual protein sequence. Um, so to give the analogy in natural language, imagine if every sentence on the internet was tagged uh, with things like, oh, this is a humorous sentence. This sentence is about politics. And then you're able to uh, uh, use that information as a precursor to the actual sentence in training. And what that enables us is that when we are actually generating a new sequence, we can just provide the model, uh, say the, the PFAM ID as a control code, 
and the model can then generate a plausible sequence that would correspond to that uh, protein family. And so this enables us to not give, uh, say, a, an initial prompt or a few amino acids as input to condition the rest of generation on. We can just condition it based on the topic, in this case, the family. I see. So like in English, if you were going to, you would feed in, in the training end of it, you would say, humorous sentence, knock, knock, right? Or you'd say, humorous sentence, here's a joke, right? And then after the training phase is done, you would say, hey, model, give me a humorous sentence. And it's really like, oh, like, orange, you glad I didn't say banana or whatever, right? Like, you know, it's already conditioned to say like, okay, I'm, I know that all of these were examples of humorous sentences. So now you can just give, I can give you humor, a humorous sentence. And you know, I, like, you wouldn't have to feed in, oh, knock, knock, and then it completes it. You can just say, give me something humorous. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Gotcha. It, it removes the need to have uh, a prompt uh, that includes amino acids. You can just condition on the properties that you are interested in. Gosh, and I bet that gives you a lot more flexibility in terms of the sequences that you can actually get out of the model. That's correct. Because in English, right, the, the first few words might be very crucial in determining what follows. But in mm -hmm. proteins, it's not that the first amino acids are giving you any meaningful information about what the what follows in this sequence. Hi listeners, I hope you are enjoying our episodes. If you want to tell us your thoughts, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review to let us know what you think about Sciencely Hashed. Are you wondering what our team is up to and want to get to know us better? Follow us on Instagram, where you can learn more about our talented team from around the world. Our interests go far beyond science, from illustration to bike riding and more. You can find us on Instagram at Science Rehashed. That's at Science, R-E-H-A-S-H-E-D. Peer into the lives of our team members during their Instagram takeovers. We love featuring our cats. And have more fun with us through giveaways and quizzes. So once you have taken all this data and you have trained these really complex models and it is generated all these sequences of candidate proteins, how are you assessing whether those proteins are actually functional? Right. Yes. That's, I think, perhaps the was the most complex part of this project uh, because uh, it's, yeah, it's easy to train, well, not easy, but we know how to train a really large model and we know how to uh, generate sequences from it. But then we had to actually prove that it works. And what that meant that we had to go into the wet lab and actually synthesize the proteins that are uh, generated by this protein model, by this AI model, uh, and then perform assays, perform tests to prove that these proteins actually function uh, as we expected. Meaning that if we told the, 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 uh, the language model to generate a, say, an antibacterial protein, antibacterial enzyme, and generated a sequence, then that sequence should be able to uh, synthesize correctly uh, in a test tube and actually be able to kill bacteria. Uh, so that's what we did in collaboration with our uh, academic and industrial partners. That is so cool. I have so many questions. First of all, uh, to clarify, the output is a string of amino acids, right? Not a 3D confirmation. Yeah, it's just a string of amino acids. Okay, so you have no, yeah. So because I know that that um, sequence confirmation is like a, 
a huge problem in and of itself, right? Uh, AlphaFold is like dried to self and, you know, that has all these issues. And, you know, pausing in translation and all of these things can affect that. So really interesting. I'm wondering for your particular example, right, antibacterial, there's so many different bacteria and there are also so many different ways to approach killing bacteria, right? You can attack their cell wall, you can attack peptidoglycan, you can attack, you know, their ribosomes, you can attack all these other targets. So how granular are these? Like, are you uncovering new mechanisms or, or are they recapitulating kind of like traditional mechanisms? How, what do the proteins look like natural proteins? The way we approach this is that we decided to work with uh, lysozyme uh, protein family. Mm-hmm. So lysozymes are, you know, very you know, canonical, widely studied uh, proteins, uh, mm-hmm. and they are fairly easy to synthesize. Turns out they are not as easy to assay and accurately measure. But at the time, uh, we were not really aware of that. Uh, but what we decided to do is we decided to generate uh, sequences from five different lysozyme subfamilies. Uh, which have very distinct folds and very distinct structures to kind of show the diversity of our model. And then we um, essentially performed assays to be able to um, evaluate if they are if they are performing, if they have the activity that we expect from lysozymes with controls like Hennig white lysozymes. Um, so uh, first we worked with uh, Tierra Biosciences, a, a biotech company that, ex- that specializes in synthesizing and uh, doing screening uh, on, uh, on proteins. And what we did is that we generated 100 sequences using Progen for five different pro- subfamilies of lysozymes. Uh, and we also selected 100 sequences uh, from the natural lysozyme universe. We selected them randomly to obtain representative samples. And the goal was to compare uh, the two in terms of how much of these actually express and synthesize and how, how many of these uh, then show a meaningful activity you know, in a kind of a very quick screen. And what we found there is that the, the expression uh, was comparable. About 72% of progen-generated proteins expressed on Tierra's self-free expression platform and about 72% of natural proteins also expressed. So that was uh, pretty cool. Uh, and then uh, we actually measured protein activity uh, using a, a fluorescent um, uh, enzyme check uh, lysozyme assay kit. And what we found is that uh, the activity of the synthetic proteins was comparable uh, with natural proteins. Um, so uh, I think about 70% of artificial proteins were active and about 60% of the natural proteins were active. And oh, with, small cool. with small sample size, we cannot say that the artificial ones are uh, the, a larger fraction is active, so to speak. Uh, we would say they were comparable in terms of how many of the proteins turned out to be active in that lysozyme assay. Got it. Very interesting. And sequence-wise, were, did these look like proteins that we've that we see in nature? Were we getting combinations that have never appeared in nature before? You know, we intentionally tested a range of sequences uh, mm-hmm. with a range of similarities to natural protein sequences. Mm-hmm. So what we did is that we generated about a million new proteins and we compared them to all the natural sequences in our database, all natural lysozymes and other sequences. And then we picked sequences which had everything from 90% to uh, 30% similarity uh, to natural proteins. Uh, so in the case of 30%, that would mean that they had maybe 140 amino acids different uh, than any known natural lysozyme that, that's out there. Uh, and what we found is that 
across this range, uh, lifetimes were active, meaning that a fairly large fraction of artificial sequences uh, with less than 40% similarity to any known natural protein was still active. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was a cool result for us to show that we can go really far from the manifold of natural proteins, the search Mm -hmm. space where nature is explored, and we can still uh, design proteins that show uh, meaningful activity. If you're enjoying this episode, join the conversation with us on Twitter at Science Rehashed, where we will be rehashing this episode. Don't forget to follow us on all of our social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Science Rehashed to stay in the loop about our new episodes and upcoming interviews. I'm going to ask you a sort of philosophical question, right? Because the the thought process in biology is like that evolution and natural selection have provided us with a set of proteins that are optimized to do their jobs, right? In all of these different cellular contexts from single cellular organisms to huge complex multicellular organisms like ourselves, right? And so does the fact that you now have all of these predicted sequences that don't really resemble, I mean, 20% is a low threshold, right, for, for resemblance, that don't really resemble these natural sequences that show similar effects as the sequences that have been produced by natural selection, which have theoretically been like honed over time, right? Does that, like, do you think these are just sequences that have like never been tested in evolution because they're so far divergent or that maybe it's that evolution and natural selection have selected the best sequences out of a much larger, you know, there's many, many sequences that could be the best. Like, does this revise our expectations about uh, evolutionary theory and natural selection? Uh, I think that's a, it's a very ambitious question to answer. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. I think it's possible that uh, obviously your nature has uh, sampled a fairly large space and evolved over millions of years, and it it's maybe reached the most optimal, so in this case, evolved the most optimal proteins. But it's also possible that technology can allow us to go much farther beyond and find interesting things, right? I mean, that's been also the the premise of the whole de novo protein design space for mm-hmm. uh, for more than a decade. So, yeah, it's it's not clear to me what the implication for evolution necessarily are, but I think as a as a technology, I think we can say that it it hopefully it enables us not to just match nature, right, but or actually exceed it. Meaning that can we now design sequences that have better properties uh, or properties that are hard to obtain through evolutionary searches? Uh, and do that faster. So I think uh, as a technology, if it can op- enable that, that would be a, a, a great benefit. This is all very cool and exciting. Are there other case studies that need to be tested? And what are your sites set on next? Uh, there's an entire group of researchers now who are working on this topic across universities and industry labs. Uh, and what uh, people are doing now is they're trying more ambitious things, right? Like, can we design protein complexes or can we design other types of proteins uh, or can we optimize properties of natural sequences? So can we take the generative models as kind of a co-pilot to be able to improve sequences uh, along certain dimension? Uh, so I think all of these are uh, great next steps and things that hopefully will come out of this field in the next few years. Uh, and hope, and that's something that can enable uh, maybe perhaps more efficient design of proteins uh, can enable design of novel proteins with uh, previously unseen properties 
uh, and all of these, I think, are something we're excited to see uh, uh, happen in the near future. Very exciting. What are the implications of algorithms like Progen for the future of protein engineering? We've talked a little bit about it, but kind of wanted to pull it all together. And how do you see this being applied in biotechnology and environmental contexts? I view Progen and the AI technologies as enabling tools for protein design. Uh, and the goal of protein design and the broader space of synthetic biology is to design novel biomolecules that can uh, cure disease or clean up the environment or help us obtain a more sustainable future. Uh, and mm-hmm. so uh, I hope that Trojan and related methods can enable us to achieve these goals. So, for example, uh, in drug discovery, uh, hopefully it enables us to uh, develop better drugs faster uh, by being able to optimize uh, existing search problems or being able to go into new search uh, regions for protein design or in industrial enzymes. It can enable to enable us to design tailored enzymes uh, with uh, kind of specific properties uh, so we can tackle uh, challenges in the environment. So for example, let's say you want to uh, degrade plastic and you need an enzyme that has uh, certain properties uh, to be able to be active under high pressure or high Uh temperature or not. Can technologies like Progen enable you to design such enzymes? Um, So yeah, I think there's a lot of exciting potential for uh, AI tools in developing uh, novel biomolecules and specifically in proteins, you know, novel biologics and industrial enzymes, uh, and I think which can enable uh, a better future. Very exciting. Are you uh, and your team going to be delving into these, or are there other exciting areas that you're going to look into next? So as an AI research team in a large technology company, uh, there are two ways we are contributing to this field. Uh, one is that we develop and release uh, tools such as these AI models so that other researchers can build on our methods. Mm -hmm. So in case of Progen, we have released all of our AI models online so any researcher can uh, download them and use them for their own research problem. So that's one way we are contributing to this field. And another way we contribute to this field is that we collaborate with uh, academics and other nonprofit partners uh, to be uh, to tackle specific problems uh, using Progen. So with that goal, we have been working on uh, some problems in healthcare, in drug discovery, and some problems in designing uh, better enzymes for the environmental applications. Um, so yeah, that's how we hope to continue uh, our work in this space and um, hopefully have an impact on society. That was a fascinating conversation with Nikhil. Just a few years ago, it would have been hard to believe that an AI system would be able to learn the language of biology to make new proteins that are actually functional. But designing proteins that can help solve biological and environmental problems, that's definitely one of the most promising applications of AI. I can't wait to see what's next for Progen. Thank you for listening to another episode of Science Rehashed. This episode was written by Lauren Granada, edited by Rakudzo Kanyemba, and mixed by Vesna Ilieska. The cover art for this episode was made by our creative director, Emma Brand. We'd also like to thank the whole team of Science Rehashed for making this episode possible. And with that, we're wrapping up this season of Science Rehashed. 
keep up with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Science Rehashed, and we'll be back in the fall with exciting new science to rehash.